For the preaching of God's holy word, please turn in your Bibles once again to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, and we will read from verse 23, although the sermon text begins at verse 26. So we will read Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, all the way through chapter 4, verse 11. So chapter 3, verse 23, through chapter 4, verse 11, and this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. Congregation, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, last week and also the week before, we heard about and learned about the covenant of grace and specifically how God's law fits into this framework. That all of world's history is the outworking of this 
covenant of grace. That the law, if rightly used, put in its right place, is not antagonistic to the covenant of grace, but a tutor, a guardian that drives us to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we learn that once we are partakers in this covenant of grace, our adherence to the law becomes a means of gratitude a means of salvation. The law turns from a guardian, from a tutor that drives us almost violently to the cross to our friend as a means of sanctification and obedience because we love the lawgiver. And this morning we will pick up where we have left off last week at verse 26 where Paul so wonderfully describes this, our new status in Christ, once we are saved, when he says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. This is what we are. What wonderful news this is for us. Not only are we saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but also we have changed from slaves of sin into sons and daughters of God. And this status change is not to be taken lightly. It is the essence of what happens when somebody becomes a Christian. When he becomes a Christian, he is fundamentally transformed. A massive change takes place, and he is transformed. And this transformation from enemies of God to sons and daughters of God in an instant is called adoption. We have heard a little bit about adoption in our journey through the Heidelberg Catechism in the evenings, for example, in Lord's Day 13, question answer 33, where it asks, why is he, Christ that is, why is he called God's only begotten Son when we also are God's children? And the answer is, because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God, we, however, are adopted children of God, adopted by grace for the sake of Christ. Then again, it appears in Lord's Day 46, question answer 120, with reference to prayer, specifically the Lord's Prayer, when it asks, Why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? And the answer is to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer what should be basic to our prayer, a childlike reverence and trust that through Christ God has become our Father and will much less refuse to give us what we ask in faith than will our parents refuse us the things of this life. Not only the three forms of unity, also the Westminster Confession describes uh, the doctrine of adoption in its chapter 12, 
where it says all those, all those that are justified, God vouchsafes in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. Have his name put upon them. Receive the spirit of adoption. Have access to the throne of grace with boldness. Are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied. Have you ever considered that? You are pitied by your heavenly Father. Protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. This is what I mean when I say the three forms of unity, the Westminster standards, they agree. And that's why I bring both of these standards to you, which were developed in different parts of the world. And both independently, well, that's not entirely true, both driven by the Holy Spirit were led to understand the Scriptures in the same way. Both groups of godly men who knew the Scriptures and who knew the God of the Scriptures. You see, brothers and sisters, this change of status is not just a technicality nor mere semantics. It is a fundamental change in who we are, that when a person repents of their sins and turns to Jesus Christ, in that instant he is turned into the diametrical opposite from what he was before, from an enemy of God, not only to a friend of God, that would be amazing already, but not only to a friend of God, but into a child of God with all the privileges of a child. That's one of the reasons why I uh, love to address other Christians as brother or sister. Well, sometimes I cannot think of the name so quickly, so that's a good way to avoid that. But there's another reason, because we all have the same Father in Jesus Christ, the Lord our God. And therefore, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are all adopted into the same family of which Christ is our elder brother, the natural Son of God. Well, we are adopted sons and daughters of God. And as we read on, with verse 28, there is another aspect of becoming a child of God when it says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this statement might not sound like much if you just read over it, but this very statement must have hit like a bombshell on the playground of the Judaizers who tried to make ethnicity or genetics an issue with the Galatians. 
saying that the gospel is well and fine, but before Jesus can unfold the benefits of the gospel, one had to become a Jew in circumcision and live according to the Jewish rites and ceremonial laws. But here Paul is saying exactly the opposite. He says in um, translated terms or paraphrased, he says when it comes to the gospel and salvation, ethnicity is nothing. Social status is nothing. Sex is nothing. None of these have any part or value in your salvation. But the only thing of value is Jesus Christ and He alone. He's not only of value, but fully sufficient for your salvation, no matter what background or history you have. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You have to understand that when it comes to biblical Christianity, there is no room, there is absolutely no room for any kind of elitism. There is no room <clears throat> for any kind of ruling class by birth or by sex or by anything else. But when it comes to salvation... We are all one in Christ Jesus. All believers are one in Him. Greek and Jew, day laborer and CEO. Therefore, as children of God, we are not only to love God, but also to love each other, because all of us, being children of the same God, makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus, in John chapter 13, verse 35, says this, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, we read, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. You see, when you come around a little bit to other places than uh, Western Michigan, to places where there, is, where there are less churches or far less or hardly any churches, and you run into somebody who is also a Christian, and you can tell this is somebody who loves Jesus Christ, might not even be Reformed. You feel this bond immediately. You feel this closeness that you usually do not have. This is what it means to be all one in Christ Jesus. It supersedes genetics. It supersedes even family bonds. The brother in Christ is closer to you than even the non-Christian brother by blood we have to understand this as a congregation because as times might become a little more difficult, we might turn out to be all we have when it comes to people. As the heat is being turned up and the attacks become more severe, 
We better learn to live as brothers and sisters in Christ now. Now, in light of what we are as Christians, all this makes perfect sense. We have become sons and daughters of God, and all other sons and daughters of God are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we are all one in Christ Jesus. But let me also tell you what this does not mean. It does not mean that we become color, gender, culture, or anything else blind. There are people with different ethnic backgrounds, with different cultural backgrounds, with different social backgrounds. This is a reality of life and must not be just ignored. It has ramifications in the daily life, in the living together. What the text is saying is that there is no elite when it comes to the gospel. But all are safe the same way, namely through Jesus Christ and him alone. And all have the same relationship with Christ as sons and daughters of God in Christ Jesus. Secondly, it also does not mean that the Bible is promoting feminism. Verse 28 has often been used, or I shall say abused, to make the case for feminism in the church, especially when it comes to women in office. Proponents of such a view argue that in this verse, all distinctions are completely wiped away in all respects. Now, how do we answer this? As I have just pointed out, this passage refers to our salvation and status in Christ. That's the context. That's even in the verse itself. We have all been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, regardless of whether one is a man or a woman. We are all one in Christ Jesus, regardless of sex. But the question then remains... Why then can only men be church officers? Why are women not allowed to be rulers in the church? Why can they not lead worship, teach, lead in the church, etc.? Well, first of all, personally, I would say you must be insane if you want to do that. Because this is about the most difficult thing that one can do on God's earth. But aside from that, let me begin by assuring you we do all have the same spiritual privileges as sons and daughters of God. We have the same blessings. We are equally heirs of the promises of God and we share in the same salvation in Jesus Christ. In all these spiritual benefits, there is absolutely no difference between men and women. But God in his wise providence has assigned different roles to men 
and women according to their makeup, which he has also created. For example, in marriage, men and women do not have the same roles and responsibilities. You can clearly see, although some Looney Tunes would disagree, that men cannot have babies. Like it or not, you cannot change that. You can scream as loud as you want. You can have 10,000 academics telling you that philosophically men can have babies. Men will not have babies ever. You must keep in mind that the marital relationship between a husband and a wife reflects the relationship between Christ and his church. And therefore, men and women have different responsibilities in life. Men, as leaders in the government of the three major institutions, Christ's church, Christ's civil government, and Christ's family, to reflect Christ's headship in those institutions. And women, by supporting this headship in submission, not in inferiority. This is the mistake that has been done all the time. They submit male headship in submission, but not in inferiority, because they have precisely the same blessings as men do. The same blood of Christ was spilled for men and for women, and both fulfilled their assigned roles for the glory of God. That's what's important. Are you fulfilling whatever God has given you as a role, as a station in life, fully to the glory of God? You see, what we're seeing in culture right now, and to a certain degree have always seen that, this, has, this rebellion has always been with us. It is a rebellion against God's creation order. Let me be very frank with you. Don't you think they know that a man is a man and a woman is a woman and that man cannot get babies? They know it. They know how stupid it is what they're saying. But they are rebelling, almost screaming in rebellion against God's creation order. That's what this is all about. This has nothing to do with love is love. If love was love, then a man was a man and a woman was a woman. Why do we only see love is love and not a man is a man? A woman is a woman. A human being is a human being. No, 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 no. This has nothing to do with love. This has nothing to do with kindness. This is pure rebellion. This is the last twitching of secular humanism before it will finally die. And it has been completely carried away. It has become utterly irrational and completely unattractive. It uses force and brutality to revolt against God's creation order. That's what this is all about. This is not so much politic. This is not about nuances. This is open rebellion against God, and God will deal with it. You see, when you look into the chronology of feminism, for example, 
That was one of the first steps of this so-called sexual revolution. When you look into the chronology of feminism within the church, it didn't start with an exegetical argument. It never begins with a biblical exegetical argument, but it begins with a wish. It begins with a desire that woman has after man to rule with him or over him. It begins with a claim, with a desire for complete equality in all things and a desire to rule. It's an invented claim. And when the true church responds with biblical arguments against it, the feminists try to defeat these arguments in two ways. You've seen it in the CRC. They respond, the liberals respond in two ways. First of all, Either they discredit Scripture altogether, saying men have written uh, the Scriptures. They are not to be taken seriously and or to simply read their desires into it. And when it comes to feminism or women in office, one of the favorite was our verse 28. So at the beginning of feminism within the church was not careful exegesis. A careful searching of the Word of God, what it says, and whatever it might say, we will follow. No, no, no. There was a wish that was carried, pushed, squeezed into the Word of God, as it were. A desire to rule, a desire of power, the will to power. It became a power struggle, a rebellion against God's created order. Now, both men and women have the same blessings. Both were considered valuable enough in God's eyes for Christ's blood. Therefore, all this is not about value. They constantly try to make it about value because they need emotion. Secular humanism is not rational. It's purely emotional. That's why they're constantly mad and screaming. Emotion has replaced ratio. Thinking. And if you don't have the arguments, you have to scream even the louder so that the arguments will not be heard. That's what's happening in this culture right now. Shout down reason. Shout down scripture. Shout down truth. Maybe we'll become right then. The equation, power equals value is fundamentally wrong and a construct of rebellious minds. Just because a woman is not allowed to preach in the church of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that she has an ounce less value than a man. This is not about value. This is about God ruling and we submitting under his rule. Both have to submit, men and women, under the rule of Christ in every area of life. We must absolutely and totally submit to Christ each one in his God-assigned role and responsibility. When it comes to Christ and our status as God's children, there is indeed absolute equality. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Here's what John Stott writes in his commentary on Galatians. He says, This great statement of verse 28 does not mean that racial... Social and sexual distinctions are actually obliterated. Christians are not literally colorblind. 
so that they do not notice whether a person's skin is black, brown, yellow, or white. Nor are they unaware of the educational background from which people come. Nor do they ignore a person's sex, treating a woman as if she were a man, or a man if he were a woman. Of course, every person belongs to a certain race and nation, has been nurtured in a particular culture, and is either male or female. When we say that Christ has abolished these distinctions, we mean not that they do not exist, but that they do not matter. They are still there, but they do no longer create any barriers to fellowship. We recognize each other as equals, brothers and sisters in Christ. By the grace of God, we would resist the temptation to despise one another or patronize one another, for we know ourselves to be all one person in Christ Jesus. End of quote. This was a long quote, but I think it was worth reading it. And this is exactly what I experienced. You will hardly uh, realize it or remember it because I, don't, I hardly have any accent, right? But when, uh, you treat me like one of your own. Nobody ever, I know sometimes I'm hard to understand, and, and the, the way you don't let me feel that I'm a foreigner makes me feel at home among you. I do know that there are cultural differences. I, I know when people cringe, you know, I, I, I know that. But they do it secretly, politely, because they know we're all one in Christ Jesus. So what John Stott writes here, what Paul writes in verse 28, in my point of view, is reality at Walker. This reality with the Wallicords, it was realities with the Joshkons, it's realities with the Santa Anas and everybody else who comes from another background. There is no ain't Dutch ain't much, at least I haven't seen it. That's just slander. There is only all one in Christ Jesus. Beloved, this oneness in Christ is on which our mutual love and friendship is grounded. Not in how lovable my brother might be or what social class he belongs to, but that he's my brother in Christ. And that's the most wonderful thing in churches. The CEO of a large corporation has a friendship with the janitor. I mean, how often do you see that in the world? They sit at Bible study with each other. They respect each other because they're all one in Christ Jesus. This is wonderful, and we should see it as what it is, a wonderful uh, down payment for eternity in the presence of Christ. Now, in verse 29, Paul doubles down against the Judaizing heretics who were so proud of their ethnic heritage, which they traced all the way back to Abraham. He says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, Paul is saying that not only are all Christians one in Christ, but they are also true descendants of Abraham, the true Israel. This is important. Because as I mentioned last time, the Judaizers back then made the same mistake as dispensationalists are making today. As they understood seed of Abraham or descendants of Abraham purely ethnically and genetically instead of spiritually. You know, even Old Testament Israel wasn't ethnically perfectly pure. Think, for example, of Eliezer of Damascus, 
whom Abraham considered even as his heir. He was most likely a Syrian. Not Assyrian, but a Syrian, I should say. Or in Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, we read about the children of Israel uh, in, in the Exodus from Egypt. And it says, A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. What do you make of that? You see, the Israelites even were never an ethnically completely pure people. The purity that God requires of his people is always a spiritual purity, a spiritual depend or, or descendants of Abraham by believing in the same gospel that Abraham believed, living by the laws of the same God that Abraham believed in and lived by. If you truly belong to Christ... You are Abraham's seed and the child of God. And all the promises that God made, including the Old Testament promises, are for you the moment you believe in Jesus Christ. So when you read the Old Testament, you can be excited about the promises made by God to his people because in Christ Jesus, you are part of it. And if you're not Christ, if you have not bowed your knees before the Lord Jesus Christ and repented of your sins, then all the curses written in both the Old Testament and the New Testament apply to you. But the instant when you bow your knees before the Lord Jesus Christ, when you come to him in repentance, when you believe you move from the curses over to the blessings in an instant from a slave of sin, into a child of God, Abraham's spiritual seed. And this change is not just theoretical. It is real. It is experiential. Verse 6 of chapter 4, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see, this describes real change. Something experiential has changed us. Once you believe in Christ and become a Christian, you are not the same person anymore. You immediately receive the Holy Spirit. You receive a new heart, a new direction. You are directing to a new mindset, to new goals, to new things that are important in your life. Yes, this is a process, but it begins in an instant. And this change is real and experiential, and it is foundational and fundamental. That's why Scripture can tell us that you will recognize people by their fruits, that they have changed, that they are different than the world. Yes, some go slower, some go faster. We have better times and weaker times, and then we stumble. That's the Christian life. But in the long run, you will see this change. You will experience this change. And in light of all these wonderful promises, Paul asks the Galatians in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. He means idols and the likes. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? 
He's asking, you have seen all the promises that apply to you when you are in Christ Jesus. You have experienced that wonderful change from slaves of the law to children of God. Why would you ever want to turn back? He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. He becomes pretty direct there. But we know his motive. He is wrestling for their souls. He is wrestling for them to repent. Paul is criticizing that their religion has degenerated back into an empty formalism about routines and formal feasts and rituals. And he tells them that he's afraid that it was all in vain. Now I have to say a word to verse 27 of chapter 3 at this point. Where it says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. At first sight, this might sound or suggest that we have to be baptized in order to become sons and daughters of God in Jesus Christ. But of course, this is not so. And while we would encourage all to have their babies baptized or get baptized, this is not a requirement for salvation. As you may know, there's a lot of debate about the whole question around the mode of baptism. What, what the word baptizo, for example, means. Some will claim baptizo, the Greek word for baptize, means immerse. The other side says, no, it means sprinkle. And I can gladly tell you it doesn't mean either one of those the word baptizo means transformation. It is a very, very broad word that describes a change, a transformation. So the word baptizo doesn't tell us much about the mode of baptism, but it tells us a lot about the spiritual reality behind baptism, because baptism is only a sign, as we have already learned, a picture for a spiritual reality. There is a spiritual relation or a sacramental union between the sign and the real thing that it signifies. And sometimes Scripture, because there is this sacramental union, this connection, sometimes Scripture uses the name of the one for the other. And here, Scripture uses the name of the sign for the real thing. When the Scripture here speaks about baptize, it means becoming a believer. It means transformation. It means regeneration. So the word baptism in Scripture describes the spiritual reality of what the act of baptism is a sign for. The sacrament of baptism is a sign of our ingrafting into Christ within the covenant of grace. It signifies exactly that union which we enter in Christ as we believe. And therefore, verse 11 speaks about our baptism into Christ. It means us being united with Christ through faith and not about the necessity of being baptized before we can be saved. Now to summarize, brothers and sisters, what happened in your conversion is something real, something experiential, something that can and must be experienced. We have become united with Christ. We have changed sides 
And we have been engrafted into Christ in the covenant of grace, the same covenant that was made with Abraham and his descendants. Regardless of your color of skin, cultural heritage, accent, social strata, or sex, if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's true descendant through faith in Jesus Christ. Keep in mind that the central fact of Christianity is not our faith in Christ, not even our relationship with Christ, but the central fact of Christianity is Christ. The basis of our salvation is not our faith, it's not our union with Christ, it is Christ himself, a person, the second person of the Trinity. Not our faith saves us, but Christ. Not our relationship with Christ saves us, but Christ. Faith is merely the means that God uses to unite us with him. In Christ, we are all one. May it be so also at Walker Church. May the Lord help us in this. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Oh, what a blessing it is that we can address you as Father. Oh, Lord, we hear this and we are encouraged and we ask you, O oh, living God, that what we just heard becomes more and more reality in our lives, in our church, among the Christian community. That we are all one in Christ Jesus. That we live and breathe and have our being in Christ and that we truly identifiable as one body who sticks together and sticks up for each other. Oh Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who has not bowed their knees before the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, please grant them this faith and repentance that many may be added to the number of your people also here at Walker. We ask in the name that is above all names, the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope in life and death and beyond. We pray.